Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. After being removed from last week's speakers list for CyberCon, the government-backed Australian Cyber Conference, Dr. Sulet Dreyfus has been getting quite a bit of interest from the media and others, and she's popped by to tell us why. Good morning, Sulet. Good morning. And I, I feel playful about this because it, <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at the name of the conference, which was Change the Rules, Up the Game. And I mean, I know that the, the conference organisers have been teased for applying that to their own speakers list. But anyway, they did. Well, yes. So <clears throat> there was a, a site that detailed um, the other speaker, Thomas Drake and I, uh, being um, censored from the being disinvited from the conference called censorcon.net uh, and uh, it was um, change the speakers, fix the game <laughs> Which, uh, um, and uh, yes so censorcon seemed an appropriate play on that. <laughs> it's interesting that through uh, essentially censoring, censoring yourself and um, another person who was set to speak there that there's been a whole lot more media t- attention that probably would have been garnered if you just spoke at the conference. Why was it that they removed you at the 11th hour from the speakers list? Uh, Who knows? I wouldn't know because they wouldn't talk to me. So I was invited uh, in November last year. It's the largest cybersecurity conference in Australia. Uh, It gets like 3,500 people at the Melbourne Convention Centre. It's run by the Australian Information, uh, ASA, the Australian Information Security Association, uh, but in partnership with the Australian Government Cybersecurity Centre, which is a subset of the Australian Signals Directorate. That's the electronic spy agency that spies on people overseas. Uh, And... They uh, had confirmed that I was speaking uh, and including sending me paperwork in September for that uh, registration. And then eight days before the conference, I got the phone call uh, saying, you have been disinvited to speak. Um, ASA was quite apologetic. Uh, I don't think this was their doing. Um, this was clearly coming from the government. Uh, and uh, that was a bit of a surprise. And when I asked why, I was told it was because my presentation was incongruent with the conference. Now, this is quite interesting because at the time I had submitted my my title for my talk, but not the abstract. So they were determining incongruence based on simply a title. Uh, And I subsequently found out that Thomas Drake, who was another speaker who was flying from halfway around the world in Washington, uh, had also been deemed to have his talk incongruent. Uh, Now, we weren't sure why, but our hypothesis was that the federal government's uh, cybersecurity center didn't want anyone to say the word whistleblower from a podium uh, at a conference that they were co-sponsoring, which was somewhat unfortunate for them because Thomas Drake, who is a former uh, senior executive with the National uh, Security Agency in the United States, uh, he's worked with the CIA, he's been uh, an Air Force, decorated Air Force uh, and Navy um, person, and he is also a whistleblower. So he um, was described by Snowden as the person whose case, who Snowden studied most before he blew the whistle. Tom Drake had revealed that the government was involved in mass bulk collection of domestic communications of U.S. citizens. 
And uh, so he's a whistleblower, very straight down the line kind of guy. And uh, he wasn't going to be talking about whistleblowing. He was going to be talking about the golden age of surveillance. I was going to be talking about digital, secure and anonymous drop boxes. Um, particularly, he was going to be talking about a project in Europe, which is funded by the EU as an anti-corruption measure uh, to promote the development of these drop boxes with industry, with agencies. But not only that, they're used by any corruption agencies in Spain, in Barcelona, in Valencia. Uh, and the European Union just in April this year passed what's called an EU directive. This is a binding piece of law that is a whistleblower protection law. Uh, and the countries in the EU, all the member states, 27 and a half of them, uh, have, uh, have two years to, to implement it in their own legislation. So this has become very mainstream. I was really just going to be talking about the digital drop boxes. However... For the last week, as a result of trying to shut us down, we've talked about nothing but whistleblowing. <laughs> it's been all over the media, right to the Daily Mail in the UK. It's bizarre because in you know Western liberal democratic societies, whistleblowing is really expected to be part and parcel of the practice mm. of journalism to hold truth to power and hold governments accountable and all that sort of thing. And we know there have been questions raised about you know, what's happening within the Australian government with the prosecution of, of Witness K and, and lawyer Bernard Colleri and AFP raids and so on. But, uh, you know, secure drop boxes seems like such an uncontroversial topic. It, it is uncontroversial and it's so uncontroversial that it's actually used by, you know, government agencies in places like Spain and it's being rolled out in companies. And, in fact, new whistleblower protection legislation was passed here in Australia, came into effect from the start of July, uh, that's required the private sector to provide avenues to make disclosures. Um, and these secure technology-based drop boxes are a great way to do that, to protect the disclosure and, and protect um, the whistleblower. So there is nothing controversial about that. 90-plus percent of whistleblowers would rather blow the whistle internally. They don't all want to run to the media. We see the high-profile cases. Most of them just want to get something, anything done to address the wrongdoing. Um, so it's it's a very a surprising thing. But, of course, when, you know... When you're Barbara Streisand and the first paparazzi comes with a helicopter over your state in Malibu and you try to take legal action to stop it, don't be surprised if 10 more helicopters with media in it come <laughs> away. Well, see that, it's, and it's funny you say that because, um, well, it's not funny. It's, it's, it's really serious. And we know at the moment that in the US, whistleblowers, I mean, Donald Trump is mm. talking about whistleblowers and, and we know it's happening here, as, as mm. Dylan mentioned. So it is... Um, I imagine a chilling effect, even that someone such as yourself with a topic about secure mm. drop boxes are silenced. Uh, it, do you think it is having a chilling effect on, on whistleblowers? Um, I think there's an effort to have a chilling effect. I think there's a counter pushback. I mean, we've seen that um, Lithuania has brought into effect at the start of this year new whistleblower uh, legislation, uh, as well as spreading throughout the EU, parts of South America. So there's been a, a groundswell, not only from civil society groups, uh, but also from people in the business community, investors. You know, they want these channels for integrity systems, as the area is known in academic study, to ensure that there is transparency and honesty in behavior and a kind of higher moral standard. You know, all of us are suffering a bit from what 
watching our politicians, and that's kind of been a degraded moral standard. Uh, and so we'd like a little something better. Uh, and that's one way to do it. And in fact, there's been some research done showing that it's one of the most cost-effective ways to reduce corruption. So technology has a really wonderful role to play in this because unlike the you know the paper box sitting in the hallway with a little hole cut out of the top and you write a note and drop it in, it's not terribly anonymous. Your handwritten is recognized. Someone saw you walk by and slip it in. You know, So technology provides an anonymity to it that can be a, a pretty true anonymity uh, as well as the security of encryption. Um, and, and also potentially right down to providing um, chat channels to allow the whistleblower to remain um, anonymous and still talk to, uh, for example, a compliance officer in an oil company, you know, if bribes are being paid, that sort of thing. So it, it matters. In fact, one of the big growth areas that um, I've seen out of Europe is being discussed now is the growth in whistleblowing to reveal serious wrong, wrongdoing, illegality in the environment movement. Um, where, you know, people are looking for avenues to be able to disclose if there's illegal dumping of toxic waste, um, if uh, energy companies are not doing the right thing. And so that, that'll be quite interesting how that plays out, and particularly the nexus with technology. Mm. We're speaking with Dr. Suleth Dreyfus from the University of Melbourne. She's an academic specialising in computing and information systems and we're chatting all about her being disinvited from speaking at CyberCon, Australia's largest cyber security conference. I'm interested in what Thomas Drake thinks about all this as someone who's from the United States and obviously has seen up close the way that you know the state has really come down hard on him when he blew the whistle on activities in the NSA. Mm. What's his sense of, of how this has all played out? Well, he's been quite shocked by it, really. I think he didn't think that this could happen in 2019 in Australia. Um, uh, but having subsequently read the media about the AFP raids on the ABC headquarters in Sydney, uh, raids on News Limited's national security reporter, raids on the uh, alleged previous home of a, of a ASD officer who's accused of being a whistleblower in a story revelation um, uh, that, AS, that, that politicians may change the scope of ASD which has always been about spying externally to Australia on other countries, threats, whatever, uh, and then empowering them to potentially spy on Australians. Um, I think he's got a different perspective now. Um, And he's told me that it's really quite alarming um, that this would be the case. Because, you know, in a sense, first you come for, you know, the journalist, and then you come for the lawyer, so the lawyer of the whistleblower, Bernard Clary, and then it would seem you come for the academics. Um, and and that's concerning because if we don't have academic freedom, we really do lose a lot of our grounding on what is fact, what is evidence, you know, what is analysis. The other thing about it that's particularly concerning is that the Cybersecurity Centre is really supposed to be about trying to secure Australia. What we know about cybersecurity is that you need a diversity of voices. And if you don't have that, you have a weaker team. Right? It's harder to defend. The last thing, you know, there's something called uh, a red team, which is where you have your own people, but they act as if they're from the other side. They try and attack your systems, for example. Um, you don't really want to hire a red team of yes men because that defeats the purpose. 
So silencing voices weakens the overall cybersecurity of the country. And that's not a good thing, particularly in the wake of what we've seen in rural Victoria, regional Victoria. So we saw in the last two weeks ransomware attacks on hospitals in Warrnambool, uh, Gippsland and Geelong. Um, we've seen in the last couple of weeks the ANU has released very bravely and deserves much praise for it, the report uh, into the hacking attacks on the ANU systems last year. Uh, it's great that they've done so because we can all study it. In fact, I teach it in one of my subjects to students about how do you do this right? How can we all learn from it? Um, But those sorts of conversations are what makes the country stronger. And if you sweep stuff under the rug, including speakers, you make the country weaker. Yeah, Mm because you need everyone with a computer linked to the network to be doing the right thing and understand... Exactly. what they're actually doing. And so, I mean, what – I mean, did, were you hanging out with um, Thomas Drake? I was. Uh, <laughs> and you were still at the conference. We were both still at the conference. We were uh, – ASA had invited us as delegates, which was very good. Uh, we did um, have a chance to ask some questions at sessions. It was very funny. I asked a question at one of the sessions uh, and identified myself. It was at the end of a talk. And everyone whipped out their phones and started taking photos. <laughs> it was quite hilarious. <laughs> Nothing like being a famous pariah um, <laughs> to, to draw attention. But um, but that is, uh, yeah, no, definitely that, that was the case. So um, I, I think, though, the, the chilling effect, though, is something that's very worrying because you really um, – Australia has had a wonderful environment, generally speaking, of – academic freedom to discuss ideas and information. Um, It's fed into really important public debates like climate change, right? Um, And if you shut that down, we are absolutely weaker as a society, not just in a cybersecurity sense. So it was really, it was a tough decision to actually stand up and go public with this. And I hadn't realized initially that there were other speakers and then I found out and who they were and was in touch. And and there was in fact a third speaker who has come out, who was a lawyer who said that he was asked to change the content of his talk. Um, I guess after the two of us, they didn't push it with him. Uh, But um, but I, I kind of decided that it was quite important. And, and Melbourne Uni has been really very good about supporting me because I think they understand the importance of this academic freedom issue. Uh, I think there's been a lot of interest from the media, enormous interest from the media, um, partially because everybody is kind of aware that there's been shifting sands, shifting sands on attacking whistleblowers in the media. And there's a great sense of unease about where this is headed um, and I think I may be one of the first um, academics in Australia who's sort of been um, trying to be silenced in that way. And so people have kind of gone, actually, we need to say something now. And I'm glad they have. Mm. It must make for some really interesting classes at Melbourne Uni. <laughs> yeah, so, so I invited Thomas Drake uh, to co-lecture with me in my subject, actually, at the end of last week. Um, and I have to say, not only was the lecture hall packed out, we actually had to move it to a larger lecture hall because there were master's degree students and others who were all just coming in, which is great. But um, the class was completely mesmerised. Uh, and they understood firsthand much more about what whistleblowing is, um, issues around information, security in organizations, but also what it is as a human being to be the enemy of the state, to be declared as a person. You are the enemy of a state for telling the truth. And his argument was that um, his revelations were very much about protecting the U.S. Constitution, which he sees as the state. 
So he doesn't see, doesn't say, this security agency is the state, it's the constitution that's the state. And that was my oath to defend, he said, was that an oath to that constitution. Um, but one student tweeted out afterwards that it was you know, the most memorable class she'd been to at university. So I thought, great, my job done. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sula, I mean, are you bracing for the future or are, are you can business as usual for you I mean what what comes now that you've, you know you've been really you've been your situation you know what happened last week has been all over the place in yeah. the media all sorts of different perspectives mm. but generally speaking it's been alarm that yeah. people have been reporting on not that you are the enemy of yeah, the state no, or whatever no, 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 no. so I mean yeah what? so I, I'm um, not going quietly into the sunset uh, and um, uh, I I will keep these issues alive and I will be talking digital drop boxes. Um, I've been invited to speak at the Fabian Society this month, so I'll have a chat with them and that'll be great. Uh, and I intend to um, continue to speak about these things and write about them in public. And it's been wonderful, the support. I mean, people have emailed me um, just you know, suburban pharmacists, average Australians going, actually, this kind of concerns us. Uh, and that's great. So I've been very grateful for that support. Um, and hopefully there will be lots of avenues to actually continue to discuss this. The whistleblower discussion and the role of technology in that is far from going away. It's only going to grow. And I think that's especially so as we've been wanting to have a little higher ethical standards in our society. So, yeah. Is that a conversation? I mean, obviously, this conference aside, is mm. that a conversation that, you know, parliamentarians are interested in, in having and learning from specialists in the field such as yourself to, to work on a more robust kind of infrastructure in Australia? Yes. And in fact, I've had now uh, um, a senator's office reach out to me uh, and other politicians reach out to me who are quite concerned about it. You know, I think one of the really interesting things is if you're um, a defensive organization in Australia, you can shut down from the community, you can put up giant walls and you can say this is how we're going to defend the country. Or you can reach out and you can not only engage with civil society and academic specialists, but you can actually find ways to interact and support them. And the reason is if you're genuinely concerned about the defense of Australia, a really good way to defend the country is to strengthen your civil society. Right, because these are the people who are on the ground, connected to the community, listening to the community, and aware when there is undue influence or corruption. Uh, and I don't think that that the establishment in the intelligence agencies here in Australia have quite figured that out yet, but hopefully they will in the future. Well, they've got a whole week of media that they can catch up on the response um, from the community and, uh, and, we, and it's good to, that we can have a laugh about something that is really quite serious. And um, thanks so much, Sulet, for coming in. Um, it's great to have you back on Triple R. Dr. Sulet Dreyfus, you can find her at the University of Melbourne and uh, I think you can find her lecture up online somewhere, <laughs> the speech. <laughs> you can see the abstract for the talk I was going to give. It's quite detailed actually on, on censorcon.net. There you go. We'll catch you again soon. And it's clear we need to do more when it comes to climate change if we want to have any chance of limiting global warming to well below two degrees in line with the Paris Agreement. But 
things aren't moving fast enough. Uh, Julian Vincent is trying, though. He's executive director, executive director of Environmental Finance Group Market Forces, which has found a way to speed up business action. Market Forces has lodged shareholder resolutions with banks, um, National Australia Bank, ANZ, and Westpac, uh, calling on them to reduce their exposure to fossil fuel investments in line with Paris. And the group's activities have earned them full features in that radical progressive newspaper, the Australian Financial Review. Uh, and welcome to Triple R, Julian. Thank you so much for having me. And um, they, did, they had a photo of you in there, didn't they? In uh, they the did, yeah. Looking very you know, smart and, and uh, straight up and down. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> We're not quite it. like I'm in the studio this morning. Nah, well, uh, yeah, you don't look too intimidating to me, but I'm, I'm sure in those shareholder meetings you are looking pretty intimidating to, ch- to the chairman. Um, of ANZ and, and NAB and so forth? Uh, I think when you're in the shareholder meetings, it's it's less about sort of what the appearance that you bring and it's it's the, the enthusiasm and the, and the energy and the, the the background that you bring. So a couple of weeks ago, it was the annual general meeting of Suncorp, um, a major insurer, uh, and they're actually taking steps to, well, deal with climate change, a few early steps, but they're also suffering their bottom line suffering, they're losing money on climate impacts and you can see how much they happen to set aside for natural disasters year on year. And that's becoming an issue for them and that issue came to their annual general meeting in droves. So people were coming from drought hit areas, they were coming from areas that had suffered from the bushfires. Uh, So I think where the fear factor is for the boards is that what we're talking about is real and it's starting to manifest and people are really starting to get angry and bring that to the attention of the boards. And so has the, the kind of momentum been generated through the financial hit that some of these businesses have, have noticed? On sectors like insurance, for sure. I mean, they are bleeding money on exacerbated natural hazards. So they call natural hazards, but of course that's the category that is going to be worsened and we're seeing is worsened as a result result of climate change. So they're seeing it, but I think from other companies who are probably more affected by being participants in the causes of the problem, so the electricity generators, the the coal power generators and and retailers and some of the big miners, uh, for them it's a matter of actually people organising and saying, look, we don't want ourselves, our financial products and services connected to these destructive outcomes and starting to do something about that. Mm. And so how does this relate to banks, Julian? What is it that that their involvement in in fossil in fossil fuels? They're fundamental to the, the state of the fossil fuel industry and most other industries, unfortunately. I mean, we it's a, probably a separate topic, but the significance of the big four banks is undeniable. We're going to need them to make the right decisions if we're going to actually shift from a fossil fuel-based economy to one that's decarbonised. They, I think, provide about, the the big four, provide about 75% of the debt finance to fossil fuel projects in Australia. And they're invested in all of the companies that you would rattle off as a list of the the sort of common enemies of the big greenhouse polluters, the AGLs, Origins, you know, the the Whitehaven Coal, Sansos, Woodside. They're financially supporting them. So as much as they, you know, come out with a lot of flowery rhetoric around climate change and staying below two degrees this is one of the reasons why these resolutions have been lodged is because they are still invested in not just the projects but the companies whose business models are are dependent on the failure of the paris agreement and that's just 
completely irreconcilable. Mm. And we've seen through the Banking and Financial Services Royal Commission that you know individuals don't wield a whole lot of power when it comes to their dealings with the banks, and and the banks have acted improperly in you know a vast number of cases. What strategy have you employed to try and pressure the big four in this case to end their exposure to, to fossil fuels? Well, one of the things we've tried to do is show people how not just as an individual but acting collectively you can generate a huge amount of influence on your own financial institution so part of our job is to show people how you can become empowered and to provide as much opportunity to give people the means to influence either their bank or their super fund or their insurer whatever it might be so we've been doing this over you know since early 2013 providing information about what your financial institution is doing, where it's investing, what it needs to do to change, but then putting the thing you can do. You can use your power as a customer, as a shareholder, uh, as a member. And increasingly, this work has built up in numbers and people have started to take action as groups. Uh, That might be dozens of people going and leaving their bank en masse, all in protest about what it's been doing. Or it might be the things that we're doing here with shareholder resolutions where 100-plus shareholders all force an issue onto the agenda of an annual general meeting. But ultimately, it's about raising that often reputational risk to the institution and saying, look, if you're going you're, you're gonna to divest from fossil fuels or I'm going to divest from you and, and I'm going to tell my friends, my family, I'm going to post on social media about it, I'm going to make a, a huge song and dance about it. So it's not you, um, Julian, going in and putting the resolution forward yourself, or even if you did that, you actually need others who are part of that meeting and other shareholders to support that resolution, and you're seeing that kind of regular shareholders are supporting resolutions such as the ones you're putting forward. Yeah, that's totally right. We'd be nowhere without the shareholders. In fact, I'd almost flip it and say it it often originates from people who happen to see our work, see what our values are about, want to use their influence to shift um, money away from the fossil fuel sector and come to us and say, look, I'm a shareholder. I've got money in all these companies, all the banks, all the fossil fuel producers. I want to do something about it. And then it's our job to be smart about strategy and and how we can use that to change the behaviour of the companies. So that's really interesting. So it's not that you're actually, you know, finding money and then investing to become a shareholder to then do these sorts of things. It's actually coming from people that are already existing shareholders in banks and other institutions changing that saying look I want to keep these investments but I want to make sure that there's no climate risk there or my values are such that I want to see us move in line with the Paris Agreement therefore I want to help this company get over the line as well. Yeah that's right for companies that are willing to move or or can move there are some companies out there that have said look (laughs) yeah Paris Agreement that's all very nice staying below two degrees is great but you know we're going in this direction and it's, it's the opposite direction and for those companies it's just a matter of Funds and, and banks need to divest. That's it. They've, these companies have dealt themselves out of the future economy. So is it the case that by holding a, a shareholder resolution that means they need to kind of um, vote on, on this or discuss it in an AGM, that if they then don't commit to, uh, you know, moving in line with our Paris commitments, that they'll therefore be embarrassed and that will be a really bad look for, for shareholders and, and others? Well, the way it works is you're right in as much as it pushes this issue onto the agenda of an annual general meeting and it will be voted on. Most of the votes actually take place before the annual general meeting mm. itself. So what the power of this does is force the company and its major investors, the big institutional investors, often our super funds um, that are invested on our behalves in these companies, 
to have that conversation and to put their points of view across. Now, whether or not the resolution passes or not is kind of immaterial because it's an advisory resolution anyway. But you see that it can be quite contentious when there's votes against management on things like pay, remuneration and election of directors of even 10%. And so when you get, as we did last well, two weeks ago with AGL, 30% of the company voting against management uh, and saying you need to you know, bring forward your timetable for closing your coal power stations, that's a huge signal. Mm. So we're not necessarily after a particular vote. We're after a change out of the company. Really interesting. Julian Vincent's with us. He's executive director at Market Forces. And I mean, I was reading about you um, in the financial review, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, uh, really about your your dealings with Combank and the chair, Catherine Livingston, and really that um, that Combank has cut a deal with Market Forces to say, yep. We're going to, you know, you don't need to lodge that's one of these the resolutions. First time I've heard it phrased that way. That's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, how, you, tell us, you tell us how you see it. I mean, there was a really big change out of Commonwealth Bank. And look, just to be clear, we're nowhere near done with the bank. They're still heavily invested in fossil fuels. We still need to hold them to account to what they've committed to. But they said this year that they want to be out of thermal coal by 2030. Now, we don't take that as we will do everything, we'll do nothing up until 2030 and then get out. I mean, that's a, that's a progression over time. But we need commitments like that because in countries like Australia, we need to have phased out coal power by 2030. So that's really positive. And as a result of that, we didn't go through with the shareholder resolution. Um, we probably didn't appreciate the power of these resolutions um, up until the last couple of years. But companies really don't want to have to go ahead with them because they can lead to, as I described before, situations where you get major votes against management. And that's a really bad look for a company. So, But the resolution was just one of the factors. I think what we saw at a Commonwealth Bank this year was the result of years of just chipping away and other organisations being in, involved in the campaign and pushing them in, in one way or another. And I think it's the cumulative build-up of the pressure that they've seen and then having a little bit of space to let all this digest and finally do the right thing. And so when you meet with the Catherine Livingstons of the world, are you meeting as, as market forces or yep. as, as shareholders? No, as market as, forces. As market forces. So, you know, we're always acting as an agent for the shareholders. We're obviously representing them, but only to an extent. Um, we're a, an organisation. We've got our agenda. They know perfectly well what it is. Um, we don't just organise shareholders. We organise customers as well. And so um, when yeah, meeting with the chair of any company or the CEO of any company, I, I think it's just a reflection of the fact that it's an issue of legitimacy. And I think we're increasingly seeing from, you know, what, with the sort of public protest and the increasing activity that people are getting mightily frustrated. And I th think as a result of that, but also just the, as I described before, the, the sheer presence of these issues manifesting on companies' balance sheets you can't avoid it anymore. Mm. And as you say, you've had some success so far with the Commonwealth Bank, even though there's you know a whole lot of other stuff that needs to be done to ensure that um, you know fi financing of fossil fuel projects into the future will enable us to stay anywhere near within the um, the limit set under the Paris Agreement. Where are conversations at with the other three banks at this stage, and and the shareholder resolutions that you have brought to them? Well, we lodged the resolution last week. So all at the same time, and I think that probably says uh, the, the most about where the conversations are up to. You know, the different banks have different approaches to us and to the issue, but we are a long way from satisfied with any of the big four. Combank got a bit of a reprieve this year because of what they did on, on thermal coal and, and what they said about managing 
additional oil and gas projects, making sure they're Paris compliant. But we haven't got that. We haven't got even some of these most basic steps. You know, how can we have a conversation about transitioning out of fossil fuels to renewables if the banks are still lending to projects that expand the scale of the fossil fuel industry? It's not a serious, sensible conversation. Mm. Uh, so these are just some very simple, basic hurdles we need to clear before we're in a position to have any kind of rational, sensible conversation about managing the issue. And so what, I mean, this, so the, the AGMs are coming up, what, in the next couple of months? In December. Yeah, so Westpac, I think, is the 12th or thereabouts, and then um, an early Christmas present, perhaps. We've got NAVNA and Zeta, I think, around the 18th or 19th. And so depending on what comes out of those shareholder meetings or those AGMs will sort of depend on what market forces does next, or are you got a pretty clear trajectory between... You know, now in 2030 or whenever to, to start to get action we've, in we've a got certain a lo- direction. We've got a lot of work to do to prosecute our case in favour of the resolution. So that's a big part of the work between lodging and then going to the AGM is to tell the investors, here's what we're looking for, here's why we've got to this point, all the advisory firms that uh, often make decisions. Um, I mean, one critical point here is that when major investors vote, such as mainly, you know, largely Australian super funds, so we've all got superannuation and they're voting for or against climate change action with our retirement savings so a lot of what we do is make sure we engage individuals as super fund members and try and get them to make sure their fund is voting in favor of climate change action because again you've got a a, a otherwise an irreconcilable difference between rhetoric and and behavior but what comes from december i don't know but i am certain that we will be continuing to campaign on the banks and financial institutions next year and the year after that and just keep cranking this up as much as we can yeah and what about internationally julian before we let you go um are are there similar groups to market forces operating around the world or um you know give us a bit of an international flavor because you know clearly banks don't just invest in australia no they don't and uh, foreign banks and investors don't just invest in in their regions as well. So there's there's a lot in Australia too from outside of the country. Um, There are similar groups in areas such as Europe and the US. Uh, There are movements in Asia where I think we need to see probably a lot of the the fastest action. So you've got a lot of the money coming from the new coal power stations in places like Southeast Asia is coming from China, Japan, Korea. And you've got a smaller number of groups working their socks off to to try and shift um, finance in the same way as we're doing here. Um, often you're talking about groups working in in countries though where coal power stations are, are proposed where we just don't have the same kind of civil liberties and freedoms uh, as we do in Australia. So you know there's a lot of support required to really cut off some of the biggest coal pipelines in the world in countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, for instance. Mm-hmm. And as, um, as individuals, customers and, and members of super funds and so on, how easy is it for people to gain an understanding of the types of projects that their financial institutions are funding? So until, well, up to now and possibly up till the end of next year into early next year, super funds have largely been quite opaque about what they invest in. And that's, again, another conversation worth having because your retirement savings are invested with these funds and for them to not even to be able to turn around and say where your money is is um, pretty unacceptable, I'd say. That's supposed to change early next year with legislation that it would force funds to disclose their equity holdings, so their investments in companies, um, and possibly further, actually. In the meantime, 
the best I can do is recommend you to our website because mm. you know what is known we gather up and we put it on our website marketforces.org.au if you look up super funds then you can see the best that we know the best that's been disclosed about what funds are invested in in which companies to do with the fossil fuel sector um, and there if you don't like what you see you can tell your fund to take action or you can you know, look for where you might want to move your money yeah, and there's um, some fun facts on that website, something like $70 billion in support of fossil fuels um, since 2008 from the banking sector, $21 billion of that since the Paris Agreement was signed. So, um, yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done to, to shift money in line with what basically all governments around the world have signed up to. So, um, yeah, interesting times. Um, great Great to have you on Triple R, Julian. Thanks and so um, much. yeah, you can seek out more information about market forces or just check out the financial review and you'll find our Julian Vincent, Executive <laughs> Director of Market Forces, um, um, there, <laughs> photos of him and everything. So yeah, interesting times. Thanks very much. It's a volatile, volatile time right now on the northeast Syrian border with Turkey. Um, Turkish forces have crossed the border into the Kurdish-controlled region and there have been reported breakouts from refugee camps where former ISIS families have been detained. Of course, any global conflict has a local context too. Uh, Australia has a large Kurdish and Turkish community and Dr. Tejan Gumush is a lecturer in Islamic studies at the Asia Institute and he's dropped by a few times over the years to really bring us up to speed and help us with our own understanding. And it's great to have you back in the house, Tez. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. And, uh, I mean, were you shocked when Donald Trump announced US troops would be pulled out of northeast Syria? And, um, I mean, what what did you think when you heard that news? Uh, are we ever surprised anymore with Trump's Probably announces, not. <laughs> um, making policy on the run through Twitter? Uh, Donald Trump actually did, I think, eight, nine months ago, um, uh, publicly declare that the U.S. would be pulling out of uh, northeast Syria. And then the backlash within his bureaucracy um, and administration, um, he quickly sort of countered that or went back on his word. But ever since then, Turkey has been um, publicly uh, pushing U.S. to pull out of north uh, north. East Syria, and stop their backing of the YPG or um, or SDF, so Syrian Democratic Forces. So this has been going on. So I guess, but being so abrupt uh, was caught a lot of people off off guard, especially their partners um, in northeast Syria, so the SDF. Mm-hmm. And we know there's been, um, you know, clashes and, and tensions for a long time between um, Turkey, Turkey's government and Kurdish forces and, and so on. But what do you see as the primary motivation for this latest incursion into the northern area of Syria? Uh, I guess we need to take a bit more of a longer perspective in terms of um, understanding Turkish people and Turkish states' uh, experience with terrorism. So the PKK, which is the Kurdish Workers' Party, who have run, I guess, with the state, have had, uh, I guess, um, a war some, at various levels where sometimes it's much more heightened than others since 1984. And about 40,000 people have lost their lives in Turkey. And to give you an experience, I was when I was living there in 2016, uh, doing field work for close to a year in Istanbul. Um, on a Saturday night, uh, a couple of suburbs down from where I was at that time, um, celebrating their birthday, there was a, two suicide bombings after a soccer game, and this is and 40, 45 people died, and this was obviously um, uh, by the PKK. 
So I guess this is what the Turkish people have lived through 40 years and so forth. And that's not to say the Turkish state hasn't uh, had very repressive and, uh, and violated the human rights of the Kurdish majority regions in the east and southeast itself. So it's something that fuels, fuels each other. So I guess what the Turkish government has sees is the YPG, which is the main militia force of the Syrian Democratic Forces, mm-hmm. as being the Syrian arm of the PKK. And ever since with the backing of the US, uh, uh, in, I guess in the name of fighting ISIS, it has been highly successful. But at the same time, what it's done is it's been able to control regions running right across uh, the border, along the border of Tur- Turkish border uh, to to pretty much the Euphrates River. So it's a massive long stretch of, of territory that the Turkish government sees is now under control of a hostile group, which is the YPG, which it sees as an extension of the PKK itself. So I guess this is where the incursion, the reasoning for the incursion comes along. Mm. So that's hence why Erdogan, President Erdogan, has consistently pushed the US to pull out so Turkey can step in and pretty much create a buffer zone for that. At the same time, it has close to 4 million uh, Syrian refugees within Turkish borders. And it sees that this is an opportunity to, once it clears this border region, so it says that it's going to have uh, 30, meter, 30 kilometres down south running along the border, and then to create some sort of refugee camps where it could move, um, I think it says about 1 million or 2 million refugees from within Turkey into these territories, set up these camps. Mm. So definitely there is a level of um, lived experience with, with the PKK, which I guess as a very, uh, there's a very hostile view towards PKK in Turkish, across Turkish society. I mean, that's a given. But also, there's a lot. Uh, there's heightened um, animosity across Turkish society at this point in time for refu- refugees, Syrian refugees in Turkey. So a lot of statistics and research shows that about 80% of Turks do not want Syrian refugees anymore. And Erdogan is losing popularity at this point, given what's happened in local uh, municipal elections with Istanbul, Ankara. So the major um, hubs, economic hubs and cities in Turkey have gone to opposition parties and the economy is going down. So I think there's also electoral calculation in this in saying that if we can have, uh, I guess, give a blow to a certain, uh, I guess, an enemy of this state Mm. in the YPG-PKK nexus, and also if we can move Syrian refugees into these uh, outside of Turkey, get them out of Turkey, then it's going to obviously increase my support base. And this is really happening at this point in time in Turkey. So obviously this is a very fresh development going back to Wednesday, so not, not even a week. But keeping up to what's happening coming out of Turkey is news media, even opposition news media, is right behind Erdogan here. So there is this patriotism that is really fermenting and and Erdogan knows this and he knows that this is a very good electoral strategy as well. Yeah, so there's a real kind of domestic element to this, massive, this incursion massive, yeah. that have happened as you mentioned following on from those um, you know elections earlier this year that didn't go quite in the way that Erdogan and his party would have liked. How is this playing or how do you observe this I guess from abroad from Australia? And what's the ways in which specialists or those in the kind of media commentariat are? Um, see, how are they seeing this? I mean, is there broad support across the the board for Erdogan's 
actions? No, I, it's, I guess the moment this was announced, um, if you switched on social media, it was it was very much um, along partisan lines. So it was very um, even academics, um, experts, so-called experts have been taking one side or another. So uh, I think this is what's really caught me off guard. Like people who are experts in this area have really allowed their emotions to get involved. So it's, I think, and a lot to do with, um, I guess, if, it, if we call it, I guess, in quote, quotation marks, propaganda war, Turkey's losing by far um, because the West is coming out and saying that, you know, these, the YPG is our allies and, and so forth, and they're the number one fighting force, and it was because of them that ISIS, has been, or the ISIS territorially has been defeated, I guess, ideologically and so forth. It's another subject matter. So in that sense, yes, it has been very much divided between two camps. Um, but I feel that the, the animosity and negativity um, towards Turkey is a lot to do with people's personal animosity and views towards Erdogan himself as well. So I guess it hasn't really allowed for too much nuanced, objective um, and open dialogue. So I guess it's got to a point where if you try to defend one side or the other, you're seen as taking the op- opposing side. This is, is this stigma that's, um, that is playing out mm. between experts and between commentators and just people on social media. So when you – I mean, I heard the, the comment that our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said uh, once this incursion took place um, and the beginnings of it, and he sounded really defensive and he was really, you know, speaking about, you know, Turkey's done this, it's all Turkey. And I, I um, was really interested in that because of the defensiveness. And how did you read his comments? We don't have a grab to play here, but if, if people heard it, you would have thought that he was – being attacked himself um, about what's happening uh, in the northeast Syrian region of the world? Uh, look, I think in terms of Australia being a player in the region, it's if it is, it's a very minimal player. Um, you know, it's dominated. the re- It's not its region and there's other um, powers within there that actually um, can shape developments. I guess maybe I, it says a lot to do with Scott Morrison's um, own personal views, but also maybe pandering to domestic audiences as well, um, that he can be as angry as he wants, but it's not going to really manifest in anything because Australia really has no um, say in what's happening, at, especially at this point in time, given that US, Australia's key ally, is decided to pull back its troops, so Australia can't really do anything if US doesn't either. So I think these are just words, and, and, and just to show some outrage very, I guess, I don't want to use the term populist, but, you know, populist outrage, um, I guess, Turkey bashing at this point in time seems to be a very um, popular thing to do across the Western world. As we can see, there's uh, uh, a lot of EU countries and a lot of people within the US administration have constantly been coming out and, and criticising Turkey. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that it might be because of Erdogan himself, but... Uh, is it also potentially because we, we don't want to see any heightened conflict in that area? There's been so much. I mean, Syria's been through the ringer, hasn't mm. it, for so long now? Of course. No, 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 I think it's definitely in terms of is it any good for Syria or the stability of the region? Not at all. I, I think um, I, I'm someone that's an academic that's been told never to try to predict the future. I'll never try to uh, predict in the future. So... But, you know, I think we can see that it definitely is not going to help in the stability. We've seen, we've heard very recently in the last couple of days or so, you know, um, ISIS fighters who have been incarcerated and jailed have escaped 
I don't know how many, maybe a couple hundred or a few hundred, so forth. Um, so it's definitely not helping out the stability in the region at all. But I guess we have to take Turkey's view as well in the sense that it has um, legitimate concerns and it feels that this is the best way to uh, fortify itself from, I guess, attacks across its borders. And I guess I have to also state that there's also been 20 deaths in in across the inside of Turkish borders as well by, I guess, YPG, rocket attacks, more attacks and so forth. So this is this is something that we need to be, have a much more nuanced perspective that is, but, but overall it's not going to help the stability. No, and I wonder also, I mean, we, we did hear comments from, from Donald Trump saying that um, the reason, you know, essentially um, diminishing the, the allied relationship between the, the, the Kurdish-led forces there and the United States saying, you know, you weren't allies in the Second World War and then other people have fact-checked that and they said, well, actually they were. Um, I mean, is it significant to be talking about the Second World War right now, do you think? <laughs> no, I mean, this is just Donald Trump. It makes no sense. Um, you know, you don't have to go back and harp on such absurd um, reasoning to pull out. I think, you know, you just could say we just pulled out because we don't want to be involved in the Middle East anymore. And this is what Donald Trump's um, campaign was built upon as well. Um, so, um, but, you know, going back, of course, alliances, Turkey and US have been allies since the 1950s through NATO and so forth, and US has military installations in Turkey. Um, so this is, uh, you know, there is that too. So you can always could have also used that. But, um, but I think this just got to do with uh, Trump using or... Um, U.S. soldiers uh, and resources to or allow them to be bogged down in the Middle East anymore. I mean, every uh, next president that comes in would have a complete different take on things as well. Hmm. So I wouldn't take, put too much thought into what he says. You just go, ah, yeah, it's Trump, Trumpism. <laughs> There's no rhyme or reason to it often. Yeah, yeah. We're speaking with Dr. Tejkan Gumush, uh, lecturer at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, all about the latest uh, incursions uh, from Turkey into the northern area of Syria, which has been controlled by Kurdish forces of late. And I'm interested in, in the kind of domestic environment in Turkey because President Erdogan, as we've spoken before on this show, has made efforts to consolidate his power and um, kind of impinge on, on certain liberties as well. I mean, I know you don't like to read the future, but if we look ahead to what sort of electoral support might result from from this, is it likely that that would translate to any more kind of um, compromises, I guess, in, in the dem- democracy in Turkey? Okay, uh, I'll start off with that first point. Turkey's d- democracy doesn't exist. It is only on paper, and I think it was formalised with the constitutional amendments in 2017, where the constitution... Erdogan has all levers of power, so mm. he controls the state uh, and the political landscape. There is an assembly, but it's you know it's toothless tiger, as we say. There is a semblance of democratic process institution in terms of an election, um, even though as unfair, or unfree the camp uh, the elections are, there is the people have a right to, to their vote to use their vote. So Erdogan finds legitimacy, has to find legitimacy through the ballot box. But we know that when it comes to local municipal elections with Istanbul, for some, um, you know, given that Istanbul is the economic heartland and the bloodline of of the government and having opposition party in there, 
Um, Aradine was unwilling to concede that. So they came up with some absurd excuse, didn't have any legality to it, to say, no, it was somehow compromised the vote, we're going to re-vote again. Um, Luckily, the opposition candidate this time won by a bigger margin, but what we also see in the southeast of the country where the Kurdish-focused party, the HTP, won, its municipal um, victories were... uh, I saw the mayors that were elected were, you know, um, were dismissed um, by the government and the government, um, through appointed trustees, uh, is now running those municipalities. So we're seeing that even um, the electoral will, Erdogan is able, willing to override if it's not meeting its interests. So when we talk about democracy, I think we have to say mm. that we have to understand there is no democracy in Turkey at this point in time as a system itself. Mm. Um, we can go into a broader conversations about how uh, how, um, how pervasive that is um, or and so forth but we won't get into that and the, so yes in terms of uh, I guess this this action definitely serves a massive purpose in galvanizing this patriotic uh, nationalism within Turkey and people supporting um, this decision and like I said um, he had so a lot of the newspapers are right behind him um, at this point in time even anti uh, I guess opposition newspapers are pretty much you can't tell the difference between whether they're pro Erdogan or anti Erdogan given their front papers now who are so pro this uh, military mm. incursion so this would definitely uh, I guess uh, feed down to the electorate um, because, like I said, there's a 40-year history with dealing with the PKK and, and terrorism in Turkey, and people see this as may, this might be a massive blow to to the PKK if the government is is successful. So in that sense, definitely. Uh, was that sorry? Did yeah, I just, yeah, absolutely. Did I answer your question? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because the um, the PKK is deemed to be a, a you know terrorist organisation by the United States mm. and the European Union as well and i mean i know there's there's some conjecture about their links to those forces who are leading the syrian um, democratic army but the fact that the u.s has been aligned with them kind of highlights i think how complex the whole situation is with alliances and and so on oh massively and i think this is where the turkish people so over the years um studies show that the trust towards towards the US from the Turkish population is getting less and less and less where I think Turk uh, sorry US is seen by Turkey's um, uh, I guess a country that caused so suspicion towards US as uh, has grown in in the last well, I guess handful of years and this is this is spurred on by the fact that the Turks see that the US helping out um, the YPG giving them I think 30,000 tons of military equipment uh, weapons and so forth. Mm. So Turkey is seeing this as as a stab in the back, as a so-called ally who has military bases in Turkey, is going there, going around um, and actually su- su- sponsoring and supporting its, I guess, uh, a hostile um, organization in the YPG across the border. So this has really not helped um, US's position with amongst Turkey itself. Yeah. And what about attitudes towards Iran and and Russia? I mean, these are other in countries that we're we're mm. hearing mentioned and I suppose that you know journalists are doing their best to inform the Australian public of what's going on and what to understand and the shifting of power and um the Syrian regime and there's so many different players. I mean, I suppose I'm wondering 
what success might look like when it comes to this incursion from from Turkey into northeast Syria? That's a very good um, question. Success. Um, I guess success in terms of would be controlling that border region. So the plan to have a you know thirty kilometer deep um, safety zone um, territory running across the borders, and to shift. Uh, you know, a million or so refugees into camps across the border. So I'm guessing, in very short, very basic answer, for Turkish citizens, this would be that would be seen as a success. But now that we're, what we're seeing is that the 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 Kurdish forces have asked for help of the Syrian regime, Assad's regime, and Assad has um, said yes. So the Assad regime is moving its military forces up north itself. I mean, and so we don't, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And given that Turkey and Russia, at this point in time, have a working relationship in Syria and Iran, a tripartite sort of um, relationship where they constantly have meetings together and decide the fate of of Iran, that's, you know, um, there might be some sort of deal maybe cut with with Russia in the middle being the the sort of uh, the broker. In between, I'm not sure. I mean, this is just something that's happened in the morning. So, um, I know. Yeah. But given the, this is how absurd um, international politics are. I mean, you have the, the Assad regime and Russia using chemical weapons and dropping barrel bombs and indiscriminate killing of its own citizens, and then now you have the Kurds turning to them for help. I mean, you know, it's it yeah. just show you it just shows you how quickly things can change in in world politics yeah and and if we've learned anything from the past you know recent decades in the middle east it's that these types of incursions and and wars that are fought you know often almost without fail uh tend to generate more violence and and more kind of armies that that result and and fill that vacuum absolutely correct everything is short term it's just defeat the enemy at all costs or attain our um, interests at any cost without any foresight for for future and we know this is the case happened in with especially i don't want to sort of pinpoint us out of this and by all means they're not the only one but you know us is is as a major role to play in the middle east and always has for last few, many decades you know in afghanistan with the soviet invasion with mm-hmm. the army the mujahideen indiscriminately and so forth and you know invading um iraq uh, in 2003 and you know and these things are all very short term we know when we look back in hindsight we know the outcomes have been worse in the future for the region itself and also now we have we have to deal with transnational jihadism which we can really go back which stems back from the soviet invasion of afghanistan setting up a madrasas in the in the, um, in the pakistani borderlands and so forth and indoctrinating um, fighters and giving them copious amounts of uh, weaponry go out and fight the soviets defeat the soviets at all costs and the blowback of that and you know, and we can go on and on and on. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully my students do. So. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Tezdan Gumush, you can find him over at the Asia Institute. He's a lecturer in Islamic studies and um, I'm sure we'll be asking you back um, in the very near future, Tez. It's really... More than good. happy to come back, guys. I absolutely love being here. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for coming in at... Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.